So today we start our four-week vision series, and our vision is this. Our vision for us and our city is that we find fullness in Jesus by being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and living for Jesus. Now you might ask, why is that our vision? Well, because at Chapel Hill, we truly believe that fullness of life is found in Jesus. Fullness in Jesus is really what the Christian life is all about. We believe that one word, fullness, encapsulates the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not just about being more of a good person or a perfect person. Although Jesus does change you personally and morally, it's not just being about being more intellectual or knowledgeable. Although Jesus does enlighten us to know more of God and more of yourself and of the world. And it's not just about being happy and to live your best life, although Jesus does give you joy in the midst of pain and a second chance to live a life that you're created for, knowing and following Jesus is actually more than all of that. It's living life more fully, a life with greater identity, a greater passion, a greater meaning, a greater happiness, a greater purpose than yourself. To be full in Jesus is to die to self and to be raised to live in his identity, live with his passion and live for his purpose. And our vision for fullness in Jesus is not some lofty, unrelatable vision. It's not a marketing spin. It's not something that was poured out of thin air. Our vision for fullness is universally understandable and relatable because everyone desires and longs for fullness. Everyone longs for something more than what is beyond this life and this world. And even though we live in this secular society that says that the world is all there is, there's no God, there's no transcendent, no greater purpose or meaning than just the here and now. Professors, philosophers, psychologists, artists, everyone, most people all speak about this deep inner longing for fullness beyond the here and now. Harvard professor James Wood in the New Yorker article titled, Is That All There Is? He speaks of a friend who is a convinced atheist this friend who sometimes wakes up in the middle of the night haunted by this unshakable angst with this question of how can it be that this world is the result of an accidental big bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life beginning from my own, my husband's, my child's and spreading outward is just cosmically irrelevant? Wood in the article says, look, in our current secular time, atheists, particularly convinced atheists, aren't supposed to have such thoughts. Wood's friend speaks of this sense that many of us have, the sense that we are more, that life is more, and that we can see in this material world. Well-known psychologist Sigmund Freud says, religion is an illusion and it derives its strength from the fact that it falls in with our instinctual desires. It's an illusion, but somehow 
It falls in our instinctual desire. So the question is, but why, Freud? Why? Why is religion in our instinctual desires? See, science can tell us the what, and it can tell us the how, but it can never tell the why. Why is it that we have this sense that we are more, that life is more, than what we can see in this material world? Charles McKenzie is known as a world-class artist, and he sells artworks to the likes of Whoopi Goldberg and Sting. And at a presentation, he spoke about his artistic community. He said that his arty friends are explorative, as this kind of kind word of them exploring every single avenue, physically, literally, however you like, taking things and doing things to the utmost extremities. He said, even with all that exploration, we all knew that something is not right. I remember a weekend and a friend of mine who was a painter who now gets six figures, he sat at the end of my bed and he sighed. I said, are you all right? And he said, this isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. It's not here, is it? It's the existential angst. It's endemic, but it's real. So why is it that we sense that we are more, that life is more, and we know it to be somehow real? And so these are the sum of the voices showing that many people find the secular vision of life to have things missing. Things missing from it, this secular worldview, that are necessarily to live well and to live with fullness. Philosopher Charles Taylor, now he's written this huge mammoth of a book called A Secular Age. And this book examines the historical change of Western societies that once gen had a general belief in God and traced it into our current modern age where belief in God is not easy. And he actually devotes the first chapter of his book on this topic of fullness. He says, fullness is a pursuit by everyone, by believers of God and unbelievers. He says, we all see our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral, spiritual shape. Somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, a richness that is in that place life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. And he goes on to say that the difference between the believer's pursuit of fullness and the unbeliever is that the, for the believer, fullness lies in a God. Taylor says loving and worshipping God is the ultimate end. For the unbeliever, the pursuit of fullness is confined to just this material world that excludes God and it excludes the transcendent. And Taylor labels this as the imminent frame, the imminent frame that excludes the transcendent and excludes God. And so for the believer within this imminent frame, with only having a perspective that he calls exclusive humanism, a humanistic view that excludes God and excludes the transcendent, then fullness is the pursuit of therefore only imminent goals, humanistic goals, and they are goals for human flourishing 
without any reference, without any connection to God. So now I'm going to talk about two very common ways we attempt to find fullness without God. Two common imminent goals for human flourishing. And I'm going to show that although human flourishing is good and it does fill up our lives with a level of fulfillment, but it's only to a certain extent. Human flourishing is good, but as an end of itself, it will never completely be satisfying. We still desire more. And the first attempt for fullness without God is accumulation. A common pursuit for fullness is the vision of happiness and fulfillment that is attained by the accumulation of wealth, material things, material security. And studies have shown that money can buy you happiness, but only up to a certain point. A US study reported by CNBC shows that households don't get more happier with a household income higher than $75,000. Increasing your income and accumulating and living above the poverty line does provide a sense of security, peace and enjoyment, but it can never give us complete happiness. Money has these diminishing returns in reducing unhappiness. The study shows that gains completely disappear after $200,000. Comedian Russell Brand said this in an interview. He said, I experienced a thing that I was culturally indoctrinated to believe a kind of salvation of fame and fortune, yet salvation did not come. Instead, I sent a a sense of despair that, did not, that I did not prepare myself for, a sense of alienation which I tried to solve by lacking it in glamour, by trying to acquire money, by consuming. Yet, even though we're aware of these kind of common studies and hear of these celebrity stories, we're still tempted to make those additional sacrifices to accumulate more wealth and things, thinking that it will make us more happy and when we're not happy, we still think that sacrifices for wealth and possessions will somehow make us more happy, and then so on and so on. This is known, as you might know, as the hedonistic treadmill. We keep striving, we keep pushing for, to gain more and more, but we're never, ever fully satisfied. And that's why when we look at children on a swing, they're always saying, push me higher, push me higher, push me higher, higher, higher. They want more buzz, they want more pleasure then after a while, you're just like, I cannot push you any higher. This is as high as you will go. And it's the same with us. There is a limit to how much wealth and consumption can make us feel satisfied and fulfilled. But in most recent times, more and more people are catching on to this. More and more people are starting to realize that accumulation and increasing consumption doesn't lead to greater happiness. And so what we find now is this minimalism movement. It's a movement to counter and steer us away from the dangers of the excesses of materialism. Consuming less, owning less, decluttering our lives gives away to another common attempt to seek fullness without God, which is self-actualization or self-improvement. So instead of seeking fullness extrinsically through material wealth and possessions, 
we can also seek fullness intrinsically, to improve yourself in order to fully realise your internal purpose and passions by being the best you in terms of health, well-being, productivity, self-motivation, professional development, and boy, do we ever feel this strongly in the inner west. In the land of activewear, bay running, asahi bowls, and professionalism, look, I want to lay down all my cards. I love the inner west. I love healthy eating. And right now, I've actually got stretchy yoga pants that actually looks like chinos. And look, how inner west are we? Your pastor rocks up and brings his activewear onto the pulpit. <laughs> um, but I love all of it. I love growing. I love keeping myself motivated. I love having a sense of personal mission. I love having a sense of making an impact. These are all good things. And they all do contribute to satisfaction and fulfillment. But we need to remind ourselves, I need to remind myself that self-actualization and self-improvement also has its limits. Because all our hard work of improving ourselves is ultimately given to a world of sin, decay, and death. Perhaps you might not be able to feel like you can fully actualize yourself because of a jerky boss who is actively trying to hinder your potential and progress. For some of you, there are parts of your physical being that will always hinder you from being the best version of you. And that can be either very frustrating or it can be absolutely agonizing. Self-actualization also has diminishing returns by the natural process of aging. And death can make us question whether all this effort of self-improvement is actually worthwhile at all. See, self-actualization literally is short-lived. Cara Delevingne, fashion model and actress, said in an interview, that we're told that we're, if we're beautiful, if we're skinny, if we're successful, if we're famous, if we fit in, if everyone loves us, that will make us happy. But that is not entirely true, she says. Cara, at the height of her fashion modeling career, was sick and suffered cirrhosis, which is this chronic skin disease. She had bleeding welts all over her body and on her forehead, and it crushed her happiness. Steve Jobs, he's the pin-up boy of self-actualization, isn't he? He's the pin-up boy of personal success, the pin-up boy of making a legacy, a lasting impact on this world. Yet when he contemplated his own death, he confessed that he felt it, it is strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives that maybe your consciousness will endure. Job speaks of this longing and desire that many people have, a sense and a desire to actualize oneself beyond death and beyond this world. Accumulation and self-actualization within this imminent frame, within the here and now, are good for human flourishing. 
but it will never, ever make us full. We still want more. And that's why most of us, with highly professional careers, with the most advanced and latest technologies in our pockets, with salaries in the world's top percentile, with kombucha and activewear, with podcasts and books, yet we are still finding ourselves restless, experiencing this unquietness and dissatisfaction in life. And all these attempts for fullness without God demands to give of yourself, give of your hours, give of your energies, give of your sweat, give of your calories, give of your future, only to leave you feeling empty at the end. And so many times these pursuits feel like that you're being robbed of the very life that you're trying to fill. It starts off feeling very fulfilling and challenging, yet somehow it misses the mark. Jesus says it like this in the passage at verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is saying that there are other masters, there are other mentors, there are other cultural heroes that we might not want to follow who promise us fullness to only leave us empty, to only leave us feeling that we've been robbed of our lives as we sacrifice for this pursuit of fullness. But Jesus isn't like that. Before we offer and give Jesus anything, He emptied himself first to give us life to the full. Jesus is the only master, the only mentor, the only shepherd who lays down his life, who emptied himself and died for us. And Christ died for us to free us from trying to find a fullness that we can't achieve on our own. At the cross of Jesus, in his death, he tore down all the failures, all of our shortcomings, all of our regrets, regrets that made us fall short in being the people that we desire to be, but also being the people that God desires us to be. At the cross, Jesus forgave the debt of the wrongdoing that we've accumulated to receive a place of status in his everlasting kingdom with his everlasting riches, but more on top of that with God. See, Jesus only offers us true fullness because Jesus offers more than everlasting riches. He offers you and I also a relationship with God who is the very essence of love, truth, perfection, and beauty. This kind of God who knows you, who knows you intimately by name, as the passage says, and not only that he knows you intimately, he also accepts you. And he loves you through Jesus' death to bring you back to God. A God who offers you fullness of himself even though he knows you fully in all of the ways that you've gone astray and turned your back on him. God through Jesus offers himself fully to us even though he knows the fullness of our sin and rebellion. Only Jesus offers us true fullness because Jesus doesn't just offer you the best version of you. Jesus goes more than that. He offers you to be like him, to be a version of Jesus, to be like God. 
an actualization that is more than yourself to actualize Christ in your life, to actualize an identity, a meaning, a purpose, a mission that goes beyond this life. Jesus offers this fullness as a gift to be received, not a fullness that is earned or gained by accumulation or self-actualization. We don't find fullness outwardly through wealth and possessions. We don't find fullness inwardly through self-improvement. We find fullness upwardly in Jesus as a free gift. At this point, you might be thinking, hang on a sec, this is not what I thought Christianity was all about. I thought Christianity was just another form of accumulation. Not accumulating money and things, but accumulating doing good things. Accumulating a good moral record in order to earn God's favor and love. Look, I'm having trouble as it is to get head in life, to work my butt off, to earn my manager's favor. I've got enough burdens already. Or you might have thought that Christianity was just another form of self-help. I've been to this church thing, this Christian thing, and to me, it just felt like another business seminar or another motivational talk. I, look, I've tried all kinds of self-help, and it, look, it just didn't work for me. So how can Christianity help me? If you're here today and you feel like Christianity is about accumulating a good moral record to earn God's love, or if you feel like Christianity is all about working harder, pulling up your socks with this idea that God will help those who help themselves, and if you feel like you haven't been able to keep a good moral record or you failed to get your life together, and perhaps you've been judged from a Christian perspective, then I would just like to say to you, I am really, really sorry. Because that is not Christianity. In the Bible passage, Jesus makes references to the Pharisees who taught that the way to God was through this moral legalism, through these rules, having to improve yourself for God. And Jesus actually calls these Pharisees as thieves who misguide people, who lead people astray from the truth of Jesus. And so if you've been shown or told that Christianity is like what the Pharisees taught, then that is a misconception. That is misguided. That is, you can say, a marketing blunder, a marketing failure. Charles McKessie, the artist I spoke about before, he became a Christian. And he spoke about his experience of randomly walking into a church service, and he randomly opened up the Bible, and his eyes fell on one line. And that one line said this, it says, I have come to give you life and to have it to the full. That one line triggered in his thinking that, could it be possible? Could it be possible that perhaps Christianity is not about keeping a moral bank account, following rules, not self-improvement, but perhaps could Christianity be an offer of life that fulfills our deepest longings? But he says from his past experiences, Christianity was presented to him as the former, not the later. And he tells of a time when he traveled to Romania and he was given a can of tuna. And he enjoyed the tuna, but he said the packaging of the tuna let down the tuna magnificently. This is the tin of tuna. Crap. Crap in, I think, tomato sauce. 
And he said, when you see a tin of crap, your immediate response is not, yeah, I'm going to open that. I've got to have that and eat it. He then told his friends, hey, isn't this is what Christianity like, isn't it? His friend's like, oh, come on, you're joking. No, he goes, no, seriously, this is what Christianity's like because all my life, Christianity looks crap. It was being presented to me as crap to do better, to work harder. So why would anyone open up a tin of crap? Why would you want to do that? A massive marketing error. And so if you've been shown that Christianity to be crap, then I'm really, really, really sorry. And that is why we are here to help people find the fullness of life in Jesus with us, to correct the marketing area, to change people's perceptions, to help people to find life, life to the full. That is what we're on about at Chapel Hill. And this is the good news of Jesus. Jesus offers us a fullness beyond this life. We are made for more and we find it in Jesus we find it as a free gift from God. And so if Jesus, us, Jesus offers us life and life to the full, then to realize this fullness that Jesus offers, we are to do it in three ways. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to live for Jesus. And so over the next three Sundays, we'll unpack how is it that we practice at Chapel Hill to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to live for Jesus in concrete ways. And over the next four weeks in our community groups, we're going to do the fullness course to discuss this, to chew on this, and to encourage one another to do those three things. If that excites you, if that is what you will love to do, if that is a passion for you to join us in this vision, then please join us for this series. And is our desire that you would find fullness of life in Jesus with us. Please join me in prayer. Our God, our Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't come to offer us crap. He came to offer us life and life to the full. Help us to break through this imminent frame to see the transcendent, to see God, to see Jesus and receive his fullness joyfully as a gift. Help us to realize Christ's fullness day by day by being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and living for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. <laughs>